Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 1. In the last episode, I wrapped up the history of the Book of Leviticus, specifically covering the Festival of Trumpets and the concept of blasphemy. And that was it for the fourth chapter of the podcast. Today, I'll begin the summary of the Book of Numbers, covering the first third or so of the book. And with that, let's get started. Thinking back just a few episodes, when I covered the history of the book of Leviticus, the Israelites had just received their orders from God via Moses, and Leviticus covers the month or so following this. After everything commanded was built, like the tabernacle, and other things done, like the consecration of the first priest, the book of Numbers picks up here. At this point, things start to happen quickly, and I'm not quite following the order of events presented in the text, as it jumps around a bit. Instead, I've chosen to order the narrative in a more timeline-style sequence. In the beginning, there is a census, but not just a counting of heads. No, there are a lot of categories and groups. First, all of the men from the twelve tribes, at least those older than twenty years, are counted. Then, all of the Levite males older than a month are counted. Next, all of the firstborn sons, no matter the tribe, are counted. Finally, all of the Levite males between thirty and fifty years old, tabulation and cross-tabulation. All of this math can't be terribly surprising. The book is called Numbers, after all. Of course, the census isn't just for information, but there's a reason for the effort. Several reasons. The first is to determine the size of the fighting force. An exact total of 603,550 Israelite males over the age of 20 and therefore deemed to be fit for military service. And not just that number is told, but the exact number from each tribe. Do note that the Levites were exempt from serving and not included in this number. Why were they exempt? Well, they were in charge of everything tabernacle, from the taking down, transporting, and setting up, to the sacrifices and the physical protection of it literally killing any outsider who got too close. And the tabernacle was to be set up in the center of the camp. Remember that there are twelve tribes and the tabernacle was a rectangle. So, we're told that on each side there were to be three tribes, all in an organized manner, with the specific location of each tribe in relationship to the tabernacle noted in the text. Within the Levites, the descendants of Gershon lived to the west of the tabernacle. They were tasked with taking care of the various fabrics associated with this divine site, so mostly the curtains and the fabric walls. The children of Kohath lived on the south side. Their job is to take care of all the fixtures inside of the tabernacle, fixtures that included the Ark of the Covenant, the altars, the menorah, and likely the basin. And those who herald from the Maronites sleep to the north of the tabernacle. They are tasked with the care of all the structural components of the tabernacle. So, the tent poles and bases, pillars, things like that. Finally, on the east, 
towards the rising sun. That's where Moses and Aaron, along with Aaron's children, encamp. After all of this, it's time to pack everything up and get on the move, headed towards Canaan, the promised land. And remember, the Israelites had been encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai for about a year. So packing was likely no easy feat. Aaron and sons would personally pack up and cover all of the fixtures inside the tent. Then the lesser Levites would take over with the packing of everything else and the transport of the sacred objects, the tent, and all of the other pieces and parts of the tabernacle. Not to forget, they also had to move all of their personal tents, furniture, and everything else. But before that, the priestly Levites were divided into their three families, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Maronites, each led by a chief, with Aaron, the high priest, set above these chiefs, and were given the results of the Levite census, with 22,000 males having been counted. As for specifics, the Kohathites were headed by Eleazar, son of Aaron, while the Gershonites and Maronites were headed by Aaron's other son, Ithamar. This arrangement was necessitated after the untimely deaths of Aaron's other sons, Nadab and Abihu, a cautionary tale told in Leviticus. The remaining tribes were headed by a familial prince. Moses then consecrates the Levites for service in the temple, and these Levites will take the place of the firstborn sons from the other tribes who, up until this point, had been in charge of religious matters. Remembering back, this was the way things were set up in Exodus. When the Israelites finally departed Egypt, all right after the Passover, which worked out rather well, as there were 22,273 firstborn sons, so really, really close to the number of Levite males who would be taking their place. But that's not all. Moses seizes the livestock of the Levites, with these animals filling in for all of the firstborn of everyone else's, as was ordered in Exodus. But those firstborn outside of the Levite tribe were completely off the hook. They were ordered to pay a tax of five shekels, a tax that was paid to Aaron and his priestly sons to offset their giving up livestock. Then, a pause in the narrative. First, all unclean persons, in this case mostly those exhibiting a disease, are to be quarantined outside of the camp. Next is a reiteration of civil wrongs and restitution, the adding of 20%. This is followed by an interesting rule. When a person makes an offering to the Lord, he must only offer up his own property. You can't bring someone else's stuff and act like it's your own. All of this in the beginning of chapter 5. Most of 5, though, deals with how to judge an unfaithful wife. Four very long paragraphs that walk through how to determine the guilt of a woman who professes her innocence, including messing up her hair and making her drink holy water mixed with the dust from the floor of the tabernacle, and if she is judged to be guilty, then she will be cast out from the people. We're told that this procedure isn't for men accused of being adulterous and it's strongly implied men can commit no such act. It's all an interesting read, not just for the process, 
but also for the insight it gives into that time, place, and culture. The next chapter, 6, is completely on the subject of those Israelites who take the vow to be a Nazarite. This is the first topic that I'll cover after the summary. Overall, the whole chapter is devoted to outlining what these people, men and women both, can and cannot do. No alcohol, no consumption of anything related to a grape, no shaving, what kind of offerings, no going near a corpse. At the end of the chapter is a blessing and likely the most well-known part of the book, especially to Christians. Quoting, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. End quote. Chapter 7 circles back to the leaders of the various tribes and the offerings they made when the tabernacle was finally completed and opened. Six wagon loads in all, with each tribe contributing half a wagon. Then we're given the detail, or at least some of the detail, of what each leader gave. Silver plates that weighed 130 shekels each. Silver basins in their weights, golden dishes, goats, oxen, rams, lambs, incense, flour, oil, grain, all detailed out by leader. Just like the census, the weights and counts led to the title of the book. Chapter 8 circles back to the Levite service as priest in the tabernacle. In fact, chapters 8 and 9 seem to be flashbacks to Exodus chapter 40. When I said earlier that numbers doesn't work well in a straight timeline style format, this is one of the many reasons why. For the large part, it's a reiteration of all that we've been told earlier. About the only new part is that we're told they are to serve as priests from the age of 25 to 50, so 25 years in total. At age 50, they are to retire. They can still help out, but can't lead the service. Chapter 9 begins with the second anniversary of the Exodus from Egypt, and therefore is also the second Passover. Here, God tells Moses that unclean Israelites, along with those who are away traveling, should still partake in the remembrance. Also, aliens living amongst them are allowed to partake. The second half of the chapter concerns the cloud by day and fire by night that would lead the Israelites as they wandered. Overall, when the cloud was over the tabernacle, they would set up camp or remain encamped. But when the cloud lifted, they would pack up and follow it wherever it led. Chapter 10, at least the beginning, discusses silver trumpets, and obviously, these are different from the ram's horn horns. What follows is the decoder ring for what all the horn blasts mean, how to sound an alarm, assemble the leaders, and set out from camp. There's even an instruction that whenever in the future they make war on their enemies, they are first to sound an alarm with the silver trumpets so that God hears them and ensures their victory. Overall, these trumpets are used to signal God that something is happening in the camp. 
something important enough that it requires his attention. Then there's a short paragraph with a dialogue between Moses and the Midianite man named Hobab. Hobab is trying to depart for his home in Midian, and Moses is attempting to get him to stay, since he's a skilled guide. The sales pitch ends with Moses telling Hobab that if he stays, however God blesses the Israelites, he will bless Hobab the same. Unfortunately, the chapter doesn't tell us what Hobab decided to do. But a few books later, in Judges, we do learn that Hobab's descendants are living in Israel. So, he likely stayed. After this, the Israelites break camp, and we're told the exact day, on the 20th day of the second month in the second year after departing Egypt. So, they spent over a year encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. On this day, the cloud lifts from the tabernacle, and they pack up and begin the departure procedure, tribe by tribe, as outlined in the text. All very well organized, to the point that they are referred to as regiments and companies, implying the military order to the movement of the people. In the front was the covered Ark of the Covenant, leading the way. The cloud would finally stop in the wilderness of Paran, giving me a second topic to cover later. According to the text, though, they traveled for only three days in their march from Sinai, making a few stops before reaching Paran. So far, this seems to be going rather smoothly, at least smoother than it had earlier when they were trekking from Egypt to Sinai. But, the calm wasn't to last. Once they are on the road, the Israelites get right back to their complaining, this time against God. He punishes them with fire and various plagues, fires that burn the outer portions of the camp. The people cried out to Moses, and when he prayed, God relented. Then the people complained about the lack of meat. To quote the complainers, we remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Seriously, they were nostalgic for Egyptian enslavement. Of course, this frustrates Moses, so he naturally complains to God. Why have you treated your servants so badly? Why have I not found favor in your sight, that you may lay the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a sucking child, to the land that you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where am I to get the meat to give to all this people? For they come weeping to me and say, Give us meat to eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone, for they are too heavy for me. If this is the way you are going to treat me, put me to death at once, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my misery." Fortunately, especially for the Israelites, God has mercy on him. God tells Moses to call a meeting of the seventy elders in the tent of meeting, where God himself addresses the leaders. In doing so, God forces these leaders to bear some of Moses' burden. Before that, 
God promises a curse of abundance, saying, Ye shall eat not only one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? End quote. And then quail came flying in and die on the spot, so many that they lay two cubits deep, about three feet or a meter. And before the people were done eating all the meat, God hit them with an unspecified plague. In my mind, bird flu. They would end up naming that place Kibroth Hetavah because they buried the people who had the craving. According to the footnotes, the name translates to the phrase, Graves of Craving, of course. After this incident, they would depart the area for Hazroth, another place to cover. It was there that Miriam and Aaron insulted their brother Moses because his wife was a Cushite. This, too, angers God. He comes down and addresses the siblings, telling them of Moses' stature among the people so high that God addresses him directly, face to face, and not in riddles. We're also told of Moses' humility. As punishment, Miriam comes down with leprosy, her skin turning white as snow. Aaron begs God for mercy for both his sister and him. Overall, though, Miriam's disease was relatively minor. She was quarantined outside of the camp for seven days while the affliction ran its course. And, while she healed, the Israelites stayed encamped at that location. After that, they would pack up again and restart their march towards Paran. Chapter 13 begins with the encampment at Paran, which was on the border with the promised land of Canaan. And what follows is a turning point in the history of the Israelites, setting the stage for essentially the next four decades. Twelve spies are sent out in the Canaan, one from each of the twelve tribes. The text gives us all their names. I'll spare you most. But among their ranks were Caleb, from the tribe of Simeon, and Hosea, from the tribe of Ephraim. Hosea was the best known in the bunch, but only after Moses changed his name to Joshua. Moses then gives the not-so-dirty dozen their orders, telling them, Go up there into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, and whether the towns that they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be bold and bring some of the fruit of the land. End quote. And then we're told what fruit they were to bring back, as it was the season for the first ripe grapes. Little good that would do to the Nazarite. We're told of a half dozen or so places they visited, and that they gathered grapes, pomegranates, and figs. They would end up spying on Canaan for forty days. When they returned to the Israelites' camp, it was still in Paran, at a specific location called Kadesh, another place to cover. 
if I can manage to narrow down which Kadesh it was referring to. When the spies arrived back at the camp, they made their report to Moses and the people, saying, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out saying, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim, the Anakites come from the Nephilim, and to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. End quote. Which gives me quite a few topics to cover in this chapter of the podcast, among which are the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites, which I've touched on before, but now's a good place for a deeper dive, especially since their strength was enough to scare off the Israelites. There's also the Canaanites, the Nephilim, and the Anakites. And that's the end of chapter 13, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the summary of Numbers, you don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.